0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today we are talking FDA. We are talking about the FDA and we have Dr. Aaron Mitchell from Memorial Sloan Kettering with us discussing the FDA. Is the FDA doing a good job? Is the FDA not doing a good job? Uh, Dr. Mitchell has a lot of interest in healthcare policy. We'll get to know him, and then we'll, go, uh, we'll get to know some of his work that ranges from describing conflict of interest, uh, as well as uh, some of the regulatory processes that the FDA is involved in, and what are the shortcomings uh, and the pitfalls of these regulatory processes, and how we can really uh, improve on them. And, and all of this really, you know, the reason I wanted to tape this uh, uh, podcast episode, in addition to the fact that I, you know, I've been following Dr. Aaron Mitchell's work and uh, I really enjoy reading his articles, is this recent, recent approval uh, of the Alzheimer drug, aducanumab. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's a drug that was approved despite the fact that the advisory panel told the FDA unanimously not to approve it. So unanimously, don't approve it, the FDA went, okay, thank you very much, we're gonna approve it. So why in the world then we have an advisory committee that tries to tell the FDA whether they should do something or not do something? It's really important to think through these things and I'm gonna discuss all of these issues with Dr. Aaron Mitchell, a wide range dialogue and conversation about regulatory, FDA and other aspects. So before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Aaron Mitchell from Memorial Sloan Kettering, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to the show. And by the way, you can watch this interview on YouTube, YouTube channel, uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Please don't forget to hit the subscribe button as well as the like button only if you like it, of course. You know what? Just hit the like button, even if you don't like it. But uh, please uh, remember to refer a friend or a colleague. uh, Please um, write a brief review. Give us the number of stars you believe we deserve. Without further ado, the FDA, the gift that keeps on giving with Dr. Aaron Mitchell. Well, okay. I'm really here with uh, Dr. Aaron Mitchell. I've been really excited and looking forward to this episode. And uh, I'm very grateful, Aaron, for taking time of your busy schedule to join us on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, I have followed your work. Um, I have told you before we went on the air, I'm a big fan uh, of your work and uh, really a commitment to to what you're doing. But just for folks who are listening and tuning in maybe for the first time, a little bit about you and um who you are and, and what you do day in and day out at Memorial Sloan Kettering.
1: Uh, glad to be here, thank you for the, for the invite. Uh, and I'm a, a big fan of listening from back to the, back to the outspoken oncology days. Thank so uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's good to be here. So I am a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering. My time is, is somewhat clinical, but focused primarily on research in the health services slash health policy space. Uh, I think I went into medical school initially thinking I was going to be doing either basic science or clinical translational research, but then really found my way into health policy, the health policy world pretty, uh, pretty quickly, uh, reading a health policy blog, which some of your viewers may recognize, called The Incidental Economist. Uh, it was uh, kind of blew up during the Obamacare debates and passage, and that's really when it started to, to catch my eye as well. So I decided pretty uh, towards the end of medical school that I felt like the biggest impact uh, that I could make and also where my interests lay, uh, wasn't in working in, in healthcare policy and trying to, trying to fix our system at the, uh, the system level. Uh, so then I, uh, that was at NYU, from NYU, I went to, um, to UNC Chapel Hill and Duke for my, uh, for my training. And then, yeah, uh, Peter Bach uh, is uh, now my main mentor here at Memorial Sloan Kettering and his uh, health outcomes research group where I've been for about three years and came here directly from um, from fellowship. So this is my first my first real job, as people like to say. On the clinical side, I focus in genitourinary malignancies, Uh, I would say almost all of my clinical volume ends up being prostate cancer, although I do see uh, some bladder patients and that's, uh, but between those two disease types is my, is my focus. And then my, my clinical research, I'm sorry, my, um, my health services research has really focused in, uh, in several topics. One has been conflicts of interest between uh, oncologists and doctors more broadly and the drug and device industry Another focus has been the the value and the cost effectiveness of cancer drugs, and uh, another area that uh, is also pretty broad, but I've had a few specific studies in is just what are the determinants of. Uh, oncologist practice patterns, like what makes us do what we do, what drives our decisions between different drugs, different different treatment options, with a specific eye towards the financial underpinnings of those decisions. Uh, so a lot of work in how different uh, drugs get billed for, uh, the reimbursement that uh, physicians see or don't see uh, as, a, as a result of their decision-making, uh, and what drugs they use, and how that can, um, can shape our... Um, our decision making again with an eye towards uh, towards where the areas that the system is uh, is in need for some reform. That's
0: great. I I share with you the more around the latter the last interest about barriers as well as incentives to some uh, be, behaviors and I've I've been fascinated by the field of behavioral economics. Uh, I'm sure you have as well, and I've read a lot of books on it because I do think there's a really a clear intersection there. but but, uh, Aaron, when you say uh, you do health policy, for for a policy researcher, what type of training uh, does a policy researcher need to have? and i and I ask that because you're a medical oncologist, right? And there are obviously many policy researchers who probably, can write similar to what you write, but may, may not be trained in oncology. Is there specific training, a course, uh, other fellowship that you need to do to, I don't know, to gain credibility in the policy world?
1: Sure. So for me, it was uh, it was a master's of public health. Uh, I feel like that for me was very critical in getting the skill set that that I have. And I did that while I was at UNC Chapel Hill. That was one of the reasons why I, I chose to go to that school because they have a really good uh, school of public health. So even while I was doing my clinical training in oncology, I was able to uh, complete that a uh, two-year degree in that during the time I was uh, I was during my, my my research time and 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 uh, lower clinical burden time, so to speak. Uh, so. There are a couple of, of routes that one could take if if doing that kind of training. Like Most schools of public health will have a Department of Health Policy and Management. The HPM is the, the usual abbreviation. I actually didn't do that because what I felt I needed the most was a methodologic skill set. And so my training and my MPH focused on epidemiology and in biostatistics. So, uh, in the study design, observational study design, how to use data, how to manage large data sets such as Medicare, seer Medicare, because I had the expectation, which has come true, that that's the where the bulk of my uh, of my day to day research would be would be spent. So for me, I guess I'm more my training was much more methods focused and kind of as I was seeing at foundational level to be able to enable me to do the rest of the rest of it. And then the policy is all self-taught. <laughs> like that's all just, yeah. I had to just read yeah. it on, on my own. To be honest, there are a lot of areas in the specifics of Medicare and especially Medicaid policy that gets really labyrinthine in, in terms of the requirements that I think someone who had done a two-year degree in health policy management would probably be more learned on those specifics than I am. And I've got more the biostats.
0: I'm glad you said about the self-taught as well as it kind of changes because when I was in training, as well as even as a young faculty member, I actually was not that much interested in healthcare policy. I was more into clinical trials, novel therapies. and, and, And then with time, as I got older, I became pretty interested in healthcare delivery and healthcare policy because As you said, there's a lot of influence that you could do at a larger level when you really um, understand the topic and hopefully try to make an impact. So uh, Aaron, I invited you to the show because I thought we wanna talk a little bit about the FDA and branch out from uh, the FDA into um, various topics of your interest as well. And really what sparked this, although we're going to talk more broadly than one particular item, is the recent approval of a drug for Alzheimer's disease, Um, you know, Edu something. Uh, It's an antibody, whatever it is. But basically, it's a drug that was approved by the FDA that clearly everybody was upset about the approval. But um, there has been many prior incidents where people have been upset about FDA approval. So, I mean, like I think you know, it, it wasn't anything new, but there was a little bit more of a crying out loud with this one than than usually um, done. So I thought it's a good opportunity to talk more broadly about the FDA and some of the approval issues. You've been critical in some of these things, and and me and you have had some discussions about this. We've disagreed about certain things as well, and then we'll probably elude from this into this Alzheimer's disease and really the the impact on this. And then I want to try to also cover some of the conflict of interest as well. I think you've done amazing work with that, actually. I mean, some of your papers are definitely um, influential. So let's start with the FDA. So sure. I, want, I, want, I want to throw a suggestion to you, and I wanted to react to it. So there's one school of thought that says the FDA should not be a barrier. They should, really, they should in fact, lower the standards to allow more drugs come into market, to allow access to drugs, and then you, as the physician, as the oncologist, you have the drug available, you make an informed decision for that patient whether you to use that drug or not, and the FDA should not police it. They wanna make it available, and nobody is forcing you to prescribe it. You still don't need to prescribe the drug, but, but so on. The other philosophy is, no, the FDA should be the police because once the drug is approved, it's like haywire, right? I'm mean, like, everybody's going to approve it. You can't, you know, you can't really control it, and many patients could receive unnecessary drug. Take us through your thought process about this, because I'm sure you've heard those two schools of thought.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I would say I'm probably as as far into the second school of thought as you could get. <laughs> that probably comes as no surprise. I think that's. I knew why that. You asked me, yeah. <laughs> I think that's why you asked me to come on here. And, and even where to start, I was thinking about my, uh, my response and thinking that you probably have be asking me some version of that question. So let's, I have a few things. As a clinician, so, so you, you use the words shared decision-making or in, informed decision-making, I, I think. Uh, um, we'll have to go back and listen to the tape, but I, I think I want to say an informed, or informed decision-making is, is what we said. As a clinician... I feel that a strong, that true informed decision making on my part and the part of the patient, the shared decision making, let's say, by necessity rests on a strong evidence base. And if I don't have a strong evidence base, then I really can't make an informed decision or the patient that I'm, that I'm teaching about their disease can't make an, an informed decision. There's nothing that I would rather like say, like nothing that I would hate to say more to patients. And, and I do have to say this on occasion, which is this drug might help you, or there is some evidence that suggests that it might help you. I wanna be able to say, this is gonna help you. <laughs> I think that's what patients want want to hear. And I feel conflicted and and really unsure about whether my recommendation is helping the patient when I am making a recommendation to them that I know is based on suggestion, but not definitive benefit. And so what do I mean by suggested benefit? I think that that can mean a lot of different things in different cases. It can mean an approval based on a, a flawed trial It can mean an approval or an accelerated approval based on a preliminary endpoint that may or may not correlate with longer-term benefit. Uh, Yeah, it can. It can, in some cases, mean a uh, a a, a well-designed, well-done trial with a proven drug that that patient just doesn't fit the eligibility criteria for very well. Like, there's a lot of reasons that that it can uh, that can cause us to be or unsecure or or feel unconfident about a a recommendation or or treatment as we're discussing with an individual patient. Uh, And I see that the the number one way to, to avoid that is to generate definitive evidence of benefits prior to that, like prior to the time that we are then as clinicians placed in the position of making a yes or no recommendation to our patients.
0: But you know, and I think you articulated that very nicely, appreciate that. But one of the things that Puzzle me sometimes is population science versus individual science. Let me tell you what, what I'm talking about. A lot of times, when you have a clinical trial, you're having patients that, you know, obviously, clearly, um, when, you, when you show a drug that is benefiting a patient population, even based on a randomized control trial, the patient that you're seeing in your clinic may still not benefit from that drug. I mean, the randomized control trial showed drug A is better than drug B, hazard ratio, whatever it is, in patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. But for that patient that you're seeing, all what you can tell him is, I still think it's going to help. You can't really be certain it's going to help him. But you can say, based on this trial, I believe that your chances of being helped are better than the chances of not being helped based on that study. That's really all you can tell because you really can't be certain it's going to help that specific patient.
1: Sure. Okay. So I, sure. I think I can, I can rephrase if I'm understanding your distinction correctly, then to more fully state what I, what I was saying or getting at before is I would like to be able to definitively say to a patient that some patients benefit right. from right. this drug. And, but as a correlator to that, I think when we are approving drugs based on, uh, weak data or in some case, surrogate endpoints, like I can't say even that. I can't even say that I can say definitively it benefits someone. It may still be the case that it benefits no one. Right,
0: so, so then then the, the, the question going back to the FDA, whether they should police or the, like the gatekeeper, is it the physician or the, or the FDA? The FDA might come and say, in a broader patient population, we, the the incremental benefit might be very, very small, but for individual patient, Dr. Mitchell might believe that this actually is going to help significantly because of other factors. If we make that drug available, then Dr. Mitchell can make that decision. Um, I mean, I've heard that from some FDA officials that they really don't want to be a barrier as much as possible to bring drugs to market. They feel bringing access is really important And then you get to decide if it's going to help that patient or not. But what you're saying is you can't even say that on an individual level.
1: Yeah, I think that a definitive benefit in a broad population or or some population, I'd still say is prerequisite to being able to make individualized choices for, for patients. I think if we have a drug where that efficacy really hasn't been clearly established, then I've as a clinician, don't have really anything to to stand on to say which of my patients may or may not have a, <laughs> a clinical benefit from it.
0: So should we should the FDA always mandate we know, we know they don't, mm-hmm. but I think I, I've, I've heard you say that we should really mandate overall survival benefit the mm-hmm. mice control studies, And we know this doesn't happen, and there are surrogate endpoints being used and mm-hmm. And and all of that. Is it still plausible or possible? You think to mandate overall survival uh, benefit to approve drugs, or do you feel there are scenarios where you feel comfortable not mm-hmm. demanding overall survival benefit?
1: A few a few things. I do I do like overall survival, but I certainly would not say that it should always and forever be the only endpoint that we study. I think that. If we are, I think it would. It's the ideal endpoint when we are aiming to improve survival, but they, we also have to consider palliative endpoints and quality of life endpoints. And I think that there are. If that is the goal of a drug, then then those other endpoints can be can certainly be taken into into account. Like for example, you mentioned the the adjuhelm approval. I think in in that case, uh, you, you could you could hypothesize that improving someone's Alzheimer's disease down the road is going to improve their, their survival. But I think it's totally reasonable, the endpoint that they chose in that study, which is a clinical endpoint of your, of your dementia scale. What is your cognition? So I think in, in, in that case, a patient's cognition is a totally reasonable clinical endpoint. That's the thing you're trying to improve. Uh, I mentioned I, I, I treat bladder cancer. I think that there are, um, again, these would be more quality of life and palliative em- Points, But there, there's a lot of work right now in trying to change the management of muscle invasive bladder cancer and identify patients who can avoid a, a cystectomy. So if the goal of a, either a new drug or a new treatment uh, strategy or paradigm is to avoid someone having to undergo that, major, that surgery, then maybe you look at their long-term survival as kind of a balancing measure to make sure you're not worsening it over the long term but your shorter term is we, we wanna see uh, cystectomy-free survival. And since we know when cystectomy is such a morbid procedure and patients really hate to have it, but that that would be an acceptable quality of life endpoint, uh, endpoint for a study. Um, so that's all kind of an, an aside, because I don't think I've exactly answered your question yet, which is, I think when the goal is to, is to prolong survival, then, um, then yes, overall survival should be the eventual endpoint. Uh, the other caveat I would get though is i'm not I'm not opposed to the accelerated approval program as written, uh, because I you know, I think that that, as written, it probably at least to my eye, strikes the appropriate balance between uh, between the 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 speed and the the really definitive efficacy benefit that that I want to see, which is, allowing something into market when it is very promising based on surrogate endpoints, but then removing it from market if those are not borne out in terms of the longer-term definitive endpoints, which I would say should be overall survival. I think that what I have an issue with is the, that uh, uh, accelerated approval as written and as enforced are two are two very different things, and we have a lot of drugs Either getting approved on a surrogate and then never taken off market when either they don't do a confirmatory trial or the confirmatory trial outright fails, or drugs going straight to full approval on um, on the basis of a surrogate endpoint and then never even having the requirement to look at a longer term a longer term outcome such as the overall survival.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the point of the accelerated approval. I mean, I thought as as a regulatory pathway, it's actually a good pathway as long as you follow yeah. the, the, the rule of the law. Did you get do you do you did you read the editorial that was written by Rick Pasder at the Newman Journal Medicine a couple of months ago, uh defending some of the uh, x ray approval and and um I don't know if you did, but uh it was interesting. One of the things that struck me was uh, Pastor, uh from the you know representing the FDA was saying, well even if the accelerated approval, if the confirmatory trial of the accelerated approval fails to demonstrate the benefit in the earlier study, we will still go back and have a discussion with the manufacturer because maybe there are certain issues in the design of the study or the statistical analysis or the population that was selected. And I thought that was completely out there because that decision is usually made pre-initiation of the confirmed trial. You actually designed the trial prior to the launch to demonstrate specifically the survival benefit that you promised you will show later on. So if you don't show it and you still have to go back and mine the data, eventually you'll find something. You keep mining it, you'll find
1: something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did not read that uh, particular piece or if I did, it has since slipped <laughs> from my memory, uh, but I I, I think I, I couldn't agree with you more on that on that concern, which is yeah I, I'll go out and say my I think my larger cultural criticism of the FDA is that it currently seems oriented to to find any way or construct any way they can to give industry an out <laughs> like to give them an out and still get the drug through and I think Helm is another good, good case of that, where they're willing to, you know, to, to wrangle their own rules and try and, and and find some way to, it's like, it's almost like the decision to get something approved is is predetermined, absent the evidence, and then they, and then the interpretation of the trials or the design of, of future trials is then, is then done with the, the, uh, the known outcome of, of approval in mind.
0: So, 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 um, what is the, I mean, let's see, so we're still talking on the FDA. Um, what's your assessment of, first of all, ODAC in general, right? When it comes to assessing, um, you know, uh, drugs and, I mean, take us through how, how often the FDA relies, I guess, on their advisors, yeah. to make a determination for approval or not, and clearly at the example of Alzheimer's disease, they could care less about the advisors mm-hmm. and know what happened afterwards with few folks resign and so forth. So mm-hmm. A, uh, if you can, uh, if you can tell us how often you think the FDA relies on these external advisors in making these determinations and maybe from there segue into why did they not listen to them this time? What
1: was going on with Alzheimer's? Oh, These are, I don't know, that, I feel like that, that question is on. Both questions are a little bit in, empirical there, so I don't. I actually don't know offhand what the. the yeah, we
0: don't. We don't know. The times yeah. the
1: agree. I would say that in in general, the the FDA overwhelmingly goes with what the uh, with what their advisory groups uh, say. And I don't know the specific figures for for ODAK, but my my recollection of their figures in general is the upwards of ninety percent. So I think it is. It's not for certain, but it is, is highly likely that, uh, that uh, council or advisory committee recommendations are, are followed. Uh, so in line with that, yes, it is a notable, uh, notable departure from a nearly unanimous vote against uh, the Aduhelm approval that the, the, the FDA decided to, uh, to approve the drug uh, despite that. Yeah. So,
0: I mean, do, I mean, any thoughts? Why would that be? I mean, obviously, we, we don't have any facts, clearly. I mean, it's like almost speculation, which we, you know, I, nobody's going to hold us obviously accountable to this. But it, it's a little bit strange, right? Because like you said, in effect, I, I'll, I'll admit, I tried to figure out the percent of times that the FDA went against their advisors, and I
1: couldn't find that publicly. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, what happened here, you think? So there there have been some, uh, report again, I don't know the, um, the, the, the background facts behind this, but it it looks like, so I would, if I were to tell myself a, a story based on things that I do know about FDA interactions and, and, and how these, uh, and my understanding of how these happen is, uh, when, when you get to the stage of, uh, um, Getting a, a fast track designation, and there are several different designations that the FDA gives for. Uh, there's the breakthrough therapy designation, accelerated approval, priority review. Uh, all of them have slightly different requirements and slightly different, let's say, benefits to the to the manufacturer. But uh, Adjuhelm got early in its development a, a fast track approval, and what that grants you by the by the legislation and the, and the regulation that that comes from it is, I think they. Uh, the, the terminology that the FDA, FDA uses in their documents is, uh, I'm using air quotes here, early and frequent uh, interactions between or meetings between the FDA and industry in order to design the confirmatory trials, uh, decide on what the endpoints are, decide on uh, the accrual targets, uh, et cetera. And so, I think that they're I think that it's it's a little bit like the the financial conflict of interest story. People just kind of over time, start to feel that they are on on the the same team. They start to believe in the drug product that they are in the process of of regulating. Uh, I don't want to use something like a flippant phrase like you know drink the Kool Aid or something like that, but I'm that's kind of, it's kind of what I'm saying. I think there's a there's a cultural shift, and as you as you start to become um, more. Uh, more intimately involved and, and know the people on the manufacturer side uh, you know they they seem um, uh, they seem nice, they seem hardworking, they seem to really believe uh, what they're doing. you have preclinical studies looking at the efficacy then then I think the the the, the role inevitably starts to shift from you know are we are, are we going to really uh, put down our, our foot in terms of a like a stringent regulatory requirement that may bar a therapy from from the market, or are we, or maybe we start to believe in this too, and we'd like to both uh, both get this drug to approval because we think it probably works, regardless of the outcomes of the trial that were equivocal, and we also really like these people and they've been so good and they followed all of our. All of our rules and all of our suggestions over the course of this long you know, multi-year interaction, which we've had this we had with them for the pre-I phase, I think that's <laughs> and to sum it up in two words, uh, regulatory capture. Yeah,
0: yeah, and 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 it's it's interesting because I think if I read correctly, that the um, the company has nine years to complete the confirmatory trial. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's that's a lot. That's a decade. Yeah. Uh, And in the meantime, I mean, how that, yeah, it's a comparable amount of time to your pre-generic competitor life cycle, right? Like they've already kind of got their win regardless of whether or not uh, the drug ever uh, achieves this, this in the, the confirmatory input, regardless of whether, even if it doesn't Uh, confirm uh, clinical benefit down the road. If it's ever, regardless of whether it comes off the market, like ideally it should, or even if it stays stays on the market, regardless, they've already got a pretty good window in order to recoup expenses and make um, make a lot of money.
0: I mean, isn't it also a precedent? Like, I mean, if I'm another manufacturer now, and I saw this drug got approved based on this endpoint, there's nothing that's preventing me of working on another drug the fda can't say no to me right now because there's a precedent they've approved that based on the endpoints right i mean they can't say no to me
1: yeah i think that i don't know if this is what you're getting at but i would uh, i think what you're hinting at is one of the like most baffling arguments that i've heard uh, baffling to me related to the adrial approval which is that by lowering the standard for initial approval we're going to get more and better drugs down the road and i think to me that's that's completely backwards you know you don't uh, we're we're on the the long road towards lowered fda approvals and it's not giving us say not stick with a specific disease type but just overall like it's not giving us uh, like <laughs> new cancer cures like we had Gleevec 20 years ago and now we're getting we're getting Adjuhelm like Adjuhelm is is I would say the, re, the result of that and uh, the result of a, a process of signaling to, ind- to industry that they can get away with weaker and weaker clinical evidence and when industry knows where the bar is they're going to aim just above that bar and if we set it low then Contrary to getting more and better drugs, we're going to be getting worse drugs or drugs with with worse supporting evidence. So I see this as taking us in the exactly the wrong direction, both in drug development overall and then also with uh, with a reference to Alzheimer's.
0: You, to you, as an oncologist who's done policy, who've been critical for some of the oncology issues, were you that surprised with the Alzheimer's disease? Like, were you? I know the non-oncologist world were kind of shocked, but were you? Uh... Surprised that much, or are you saying, okay, and we we deal with oncology with this and oncology all the time.
1: I was I was still surprised just because of how how lopsided the advisory council vote was on Agihelm, but I would I would say my my guess is I was less surprised than a non-oncologist. I think that the uh, the tweet that I sent out. Uh, expressing some of my like snarkiness and an anger about this whole this whole situation we're in was comparing the adjuvant approval back to uh, to the approval for of adjuvant sunitinib for for high risk renal cell cancer after after nephrectomy, which uh, as as I'm told I don't think this has been empirically demonstrated yet, but but it seems like this is. Fortunately, not been a practice that's gotten a lot of hold in the oncology community. But I think that aside, to me, the FDA has a track record of, of approvals where there is, I would say we can be very confident that there is no patient benefit and also that there is patient harm. So if you if you're going to approve, uh, the adjuvant sunitinib, then I would say, yeah, the doors are very open to to approving adjuhelm, where there's uh, there's maybe still some chance that that a clinical benefit could get uh, could get worn out over the longer term.
0: One of the things that you've been very interested in, Aaron, is conflict of interest, and you you mentioned a lot of uh, some of your work uh, that has been uh, published and highly cited was in, in this area. But we can't, I mean, there is no, when you look at the advisory panel here, um, at least I haven't been able to see anything publicly that there was actual financial conflict of interest pertaining to how this drug was approved. How about other scenarios? Uh, have you looked in your research into oncology drugs or oncology agents that have been approved based on surrogate endpoints or based on advisory and ODAC? And, and, and have you been able to see a link whether... Some of the um, drugs that were approved for with a lower bar were related to some conflict of interest pertaining to the advisory council, or has this not been looked at?
1: I I believe that uh, so not from my own work, but others have um, have tried to have tried to look at that. I think outside of the oncology sphere, and these there's always there's always a little bit of um the uh, opacity on on the data in, in some sam- in some situations or just a small sample size. If you're looking at numbers, numbers of approvals, it's a pretty small sample size. But to I think to the best of uh of our collectibility to look at this, I don't think there's been, I think I would remember it if there is a, a very clear, uh, <laughs> clear association between presence of conflicted members on say an advisory council and and the the outcomes uh again that could be very well be either the absence of such an association or just not enough uh statistical sample size to to make that uh, association but i think that at least for the in the current i i understand that it used to be different but in the current era uh, the FDA does a, a fairly good job of at least the kind of the, the the nominal removal of conflicts of patient of um of advisory council members, voting members who have a conflict with the specific agent or the specific company whose drug is under review. So I think that that like that specific level of conflict with the company I, I don't think is something that plays a role in um in the like our current era of of FDA uh, decisions.
0: So let's talk just a little bit about conflict of interest and and financial, but as well, I want to talk about the non-financial conflict of interest, if I may. I have a lot of interest in the non-financial conflict of interest, so we'll segue to that a little bit. But um, so do you really honestly believe that if a company buys me a sandwich, I'm going to prescribe the drug because I got a turkey sandwich over lunch? Yes.
1: Really? Yeah. I think that's an empirical question. At least a steak and french fries. Come on. I think it's an empirical question, and I think it's been answered.
0: But to take us through that. Take us through the how it was answered, and um, like any investigation, I presume there are certain pitfalls or certain limitations to the investigation. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'd like to um, maybe take listeners through that empirical inv- uh, evidence that you mentioned and just discuss it a little bit, because obviously there are two sides
1: to the story. Yeah so so i recently uh my my review group and i uh or my research group and i recently published a review in annals of internal medicine uh, that was a systematic review of uh, of every paper we could find that studied the association between uh physicians receipt of uh, money or something else of financial value such as a fancy meal from a drug or device manufacturer, and that uh, physician's uh, uh, prescribing or or, or 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 utilization behavior, and uh, what we found was that uh, over several dozen studies, the uh, that association was was unanimous. Like there was not a negative study that that we could find. So every study that's looked and said if Doctor X gets uh, gets a, a payment or has previously gotten a payment from uh, this manufacturer, their their current and or future utilization of that company's drug will be higher than if they than if they didn't. Um, so that's though an association. Uh, that's a correlation and not a causation. And I would say that most of the papers that have been published that we reviewed, I, I would say they they could be fairly described as correlative and not causative. because, for example, if you're not controlling for or adjusting for someone's specialty, then you would say like, oh, getting payments from Novartis causes you to prescribe more nilotinib, right? But no, like that association would be there even without causation. They just happen to, of course, they buy more meals to the oncologists who, who treat CML and hence prescribe nilotinib, even if that's uh, getting that meal changes the doctor's behavior zero and they prescribe just as much nilotinib as they would have previously, like you will see that association. So I would say that that is is part of the association that we see is like simply uh, the the, the correlation. Uh, But then there are some papers that have done, um, that have used more econometric methods and use what's called an event study analysis where uh, physicians are compared to their own prior behavior. And uh, like across classes now, we're not speaking just oncology drugs, but what you see very clearly is when you have uh, data points over say 12 previous months, and then you've got a month zero where you you center the, uh, your, your time course to the date that the physician got the, the payment or got the meal, which you can see in the open payments database, you see like a very clear bump that goes up for several months after before coming, coming to baseline. Uh, so this isn't, uh, so that should be something that could that should account for what the phys- physician's specialty was uh, you know their their case mix which patients they have the characteristics of their patients because you know within a physician like that didn't change from from March to to April the only thing that changed it for me Aaron mitchell from March to April is whether I got a payment from from that company so I'd say that you know there there's certainly a lot of correlation there but when you do a really rigorous and good job then there there was some causation there and I don't think that you could you can like look at these time series analyses and you come away with any other conclusion that, yep, they got a meal and, and their prescriptions went up for a few months afterwards.
0: So two things I want to ask you, um, and you've been, by the way, very generous with your time, so I promise not to keep you for long, but this is just an exciting uh, topic always. One is, why is there not a lot of um, discussion or protest or, I don't know, crying out uh, about medical societies receiving payments. Uh, and what I mean by that is we are both members of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. I'm a member of ASH as well, American Society of Hematology. I've done lymphoma, as you know, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think, you know, and I know that ASCO and ASH, they receive millions and millions and millions of manufacturer money exhibits and so forth. It's in fact, it's well known and it's uh, it's a part of the revenue and all of that stuff. Yet the same society that receives that millions and millions and millions of dollars. hold us sometimes hostage for some of these conflicts, even when you submit manuscripts and papers. I guess what I'm trying to get at, why is the conflict of interest blown out of proportion on the individual level, as opposed on a society level or organization level? I uh, I think they should be held to the same standard.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> you're definitely, you're not going to get disagreement from me on on that point. I think that if anything, the industry payments not to individual clinicians, even the KOLs among us, but the payments to the institutions that employ us and the professional societies uh, are, are probably even, even more substantial in, in shifting the overall landscape of, of who's using, using what drugs and are probably even more, I would, I would say harmful, <laughs> I'll use that word. Uh, yeah, I think that, that that is absolutely a concern.
0: How, how would that impact, like, do you, like, I couldn't, I can't find how does this impact mm-hmm. uh, individual patients? Because I mean, ultimately what we care about is patients. How yeah. are these uh, sponsorships on the society level, these big exhibits at meetings affecting patients are, are you able to link those somehow?
1: Well, we, I would say that we know, we know empirically so far that, uh, that I'm, I'm confident based on the data we have that, that the payments um, from drug companies influence our prescribing. And so the next question then, or, or, or what we're left with, is that are those prescribing changes in patients' best interests or, or are they not? And there's a couple side, sides to this. The side in patients' interests might be that drug companies are more heavily promoting, you know, their new drugs just onto the market. We've had some good drugs recently. So for example, to the extent that the manufacturer of nivolumab or pembrolizumab is promoting that drug for appropriate indications for melanoma or for non-small cell lung cancer, then those payments could in fact, lead to uh, to improved outcomes among patients. So that is like, that's one, one argument. Um, again, I think it, it has to come back to to an empirical question, which is which are what are the drugs that companies are spending the most resources promoting? And of course, with individual drug exceptions, when you look at the landscape broadly, and I'm thinking now of of work done by Joseph Ross at, at Yale, when you look. Um, it, it is, in fact, the drugs that are less innovative and, and less effective that they have to promote harder. I think we clinicians are maybe a little bit better at naturally jumping on the things that really look the most beneficial. And it's the me-too drugs; it's the ones that have lower clinical evidence that then, on a like per drug basis, more um, more money needs to get spent to promote to us. So if that is more an accurate reflection of where promotional money is going, then I think there's a good chance that promotional spending to doctors is, is not benefiting patients care and, and in fact could be, um, could be counterproductive.
0: Very provoking thoughts. Um, uh, I, I do think that something could be looked at a little bit more closely though. I think there's maybe there are opportunities to look at that. I want to finish off with something pertaining to the non-financial. Like, I feel, you know, it's, it's easy to track the financial conflict, which, although by the way, I mean, I actually think open payment, um, website is full of flaws. Uh, I actually don't check it anymore. Uh, when I get the notification, check your thing. I don't because they've completely messed up a couple of years ago. I called, I protested, I emailed. Okay. I'm like, you know what? I don't have time for this. Never got any follow-up back. So I actually don't even check it anymore. Um, but you know, nonetheless, it's probably the only outlet to ask that question that you're asking. But the non-financial comeback of interest, we can't track it anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let me just uh, maybe throw an example to you that could maybe provocative. You are a faculty member somewhere at a particular university in the United States. You are a principal investigator on a clinical trial. If mm-hmm. a trial, it took a year and a half to get the trial, getting through the IRB, the sponsorship, all of that stuff, you're very excited. You get a patient comes in the room who is possibly eligible for this, can't prove it. But I'm pretty sure the way you're gonna propose the trial will be that this is a great thing for you if you actually get enrolled in this trial. Um, While we know, if we knew it was a great thing for you, there would be no clinical trial. I mean, I think the, the discussion of benefit and harm is always skewed differently when you are the one who is running the trial because that trial is going to lead to your promotion. You're going to get the publication. You may get an mm-hmm. oral session, oral presentation somewhere. So that might be uh, an important thing for you and, and so on. So how do we reconcile
1: uh, that uh, issue? So I've, um, I've heard the non-financial uh, conflict of interest concern before. My my thinking on that is, is I'm, I'm certainly not the first to to make this argument but i, I it's one that makes sense with and i would endorse it which is if we're talking about the or i guess the the, the process which corrects non-financial conflicts of interest is, is is science if we are saying that the the individual investigators can be let's say blindly adherent to a given hypothesis or a given trial because of their own interest in it in part then like of course yeah like for sure Uh, but i think that that problem applies not just to oncology not just to clinical trials that applies to to science more broadly and Certainly not in the short term, but over the the long term, I, I still at least for one uh, believe that the like the long arc of science bends towards truth because there are enough um, enough uh, enough curmudgeons out there who don't uh, go with the prevailing wisdom and want to conduct a, a counter trial or, or 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 something that would uh, they have a different hypothesis and would and would um, would uh, uh, try and generate evidence uh, to the contrary, which if hypothesis 1 was incorrect then they will find and then that will lead to the discussion and and, and discovery of truth uh, that's in distinction to financial conflict of interest which does not which is not balanced by like negative <laughs> industry funds from somewhere else it's all in one direction and it is all geared towards more use of of the of the promoted pro- product whereas uh, the, the Non-financial conflicts of interest in some cases may support a new new drug, but then contrary evidence will emerge to the contrary and over time will will balance out. And so I think that's why I'm less concerned in terms of the the long-term course of of medicine about the non-financial conflict than I am about the financial um, conflict that we have with industry.
0: So, yeah, I mean, the non-financial conflict of interest is, it, it, it is tricky because, I mean, at the end of the day, also your, I mean, your career is on the line as an academician pertaining to some of these issues pertaining to clinical trials. And frankly, it's very difficult to do clinical trials without getting sponsorship. So, I mean, I feel there's a lot of intermingleness right there. That is, it's very easy, you know, when you track direct payments, direct payments are easy. But there's indirect uh, process. And, and I also, I mean, I mean, I would think you would agree that it's very important to collaborate with the pharmaceutical industry, right? I mean, I think, you know, much, a lot of innovations have come from pharma. I mean, Gleevec, frankly, I would say this was purely pharma. You know, I mean, if you look at Rituxan, Herceptin, Avastin, I mean, we can name a lot of drugs the IO therapy and so forth. So you're, you're pro-collaboration, I presume. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You just want to have some limitations or some boundaries to this collaboration?
1: I would, I think I would, I think my ideal model of, of drug development would look would look substantially different <laughs> than, than what we have now. Uh, I have, Again, I'm not the first. So, to so,
0: so if you're in charge, my last yeah. question, my, right. that's, you're going to actually comment on that. OK, last question is you're in charge of health policy and you can actually make all the changes that you want. All right. <laughs> yes. So tell me, your, tell me your top five agenda items as you're uh, as you're lobbying for the position.
1: Oh, wait. OK, I thought we were going to go just just on the on the, the collaboration angle. You've opened that more broadly to everything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, one of them. But one of them has to be the collaboration piece. OK, so, so we'll start with the collaboration. Uh, so rather than just. Uh, companies uh, sponsoring like directly to, uh, to making arrangements directly with institutions. I would um, support a model, and this is, this is very vague. I know I've not thought through the, the details uh, as others have, but I have seen it written. And this is a model that I would, that seems very appealing to me, which is drug company uh, develops compounds with, uh, er, with early collaboration from scientists, from academic scientists, uh, then turns it over to the FDA and says, FDA, you, um, with your independent scientists who have never and never have, never will uh, work with our company, uh, design and run and sponsor the clinical trial that will, that will get this drug approved. Uh, trial design entirely independent from industry is what I would like to see, entirely independent. Uh, so from start to finish, that, uh, that process uh, happens without industry with, without industry input. Uh, so that's number one uh number two is is an is an easy one uh the federal government has to be able to negotiate drug prices with industry i would say probably more so than just negotiate they should be able to set drug prices uh number three would be that uh, uh the physician-administered drugs uh, which are commonly called the like the part b drugs within uh within uh, the oncology space Should uh, we should no longer get paid on margin for those drugs? We should get a a flat fee uh, that should remove the incentive that oncologists currently have, which is to use more expensive drugs because they're more lucrative to us. Uh, Gosh, those are my big ones. Um, Oh, I haven't even gotten to conflicts of interest yet. Uh, Yeah, I would say that um, we could we could go straight to um, (laughs) to no uh, no industry payments uh, to to physicians as long as I'm writing the rules. I'll come back to you on number five.
0: Okay, so you are, this is your agenda. So ladies and gentlemen, listeners, you have to vote for Dr. Aaron Mitchell if you like this agenda. Let's see how many votes you get.
1: Unfiltered <laughs> agenda, entirely unfiltered, but uh, based on the name of the podcast, I feel like this is the, this is the place that I got to get my agenda out there.
0: Aaron, this has been great. I really, truly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I I want a promise from you that we'll have you back in about six or seven months and talk some more. There's so much we can really talk. It's very difficult to cover this in one hour. I feel all of these topics could actually um, have uh, one item. The one thing I would like to do in the future, I would like to be part of the debate is the conflict of interest debate, which is I think that uh, it's a very heated debate, and I've actually moderated a couple of these and really, the, uh, I think it's, it will be a fun to, uh, to have an opposing view to that. But uh, I need to read your paper in the annals. I'll admit I did not uh, read it.
1: Well, um, yeah, uh, I know that Dr. Vincent Rajkumar has been a recent co-host of yours. So yeah. Get, yeah. get him on there, get me on there. And I don't know, someone else to maybe represent the other side. <laughs> and you yeah, No,
0: no, we, I mean, I
1: this would be great. Yeah.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Aaron. appreciate taking the time and look forward to having you again.
1: Yeah. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for the invitation. It was was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. I appreciate your support and you tuning in. Please let me know how I am doing and whether we could do better. You could do uh, that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You could also send me an email through my website, www.shadiabhan.com. Again, appreciate your support. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and write a brief review, refer friends or colleagues. Don't forget to watch the interviews on YouTube and to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Until next time, take care.